Hi, I'm David Edelman, a neuroscientist and paleoanthropologist, and welcome to the podcast On Consciousness with Bernard Bars. Roundtable episodes of the podcast On Consciousness with Bernard Bars were recorded and filmed in my parents' dining room in La Jolla, where they lived for more than two decades. This and the upcoming excursions into the nature of consciousness are a special tribute to my dad, Nobel laureate Gerald Edelman, and a prodigious scientific and intellectual output born of a bottomless imagination, boundless energy, and immense creativity. I think of these podcasts as fitting bookends for all the discussions we had about the nature of consciousness, and in fact, all the other unresolved biological questions during our years together in Southern California. We're here today with Bernie, acclaimed author in psychobiology, including his newest book, On Consciousness, Science and Subjectivity, Updated Works in Global Workspace Theory. Bernie is the recipient of the 2019 Hermann von Hemholtz Life Contribution Award by the International Neural Network Society, which recognizes outstanding achievements in perception by individuals whose scientific life contribution to the field of neural networks was proven to be paradigm-changing and long-lasting. Also joining us is Dr. Jay Geed, a child, adolescent, and geriatric psychiatrist by training. Jay is the Chief of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at UC San Diego, Fukui University in Japan, and at Johns Hopkins in reproductive medicine. His overarching interest for many years has been the brain and how it changes throughout life. As scientists, as philosophers, as human observers, under what conditions can we infer that some living organism is conscious? Consciousness is truly the difference that makes a difference. Today's discussion is about the rich variety of conscious experience by virtue of the richness of our sensoria and the capacity for the brain to pick this all apart and put it back together both developmentally and evolutionarily. So Bernie, in a nutshell, what, what are the key points of global workspace? Sort of give me a kind of a nutshell description of the theory. Yeah, uh, it's really extremely simple. It involves a place where different actors can work together and they can vote for or against some idea that's been posted mm -hmm. by one of the actors. Mm -hmm. Uh, and then, uh, and then, basically, the most popular idea, the which get richer, right? And so you broadcast the most popular idea, and that was a very new idea when Alan Newell uh, hit on it in the 1970s at Carnegie Mellon University, uh, because subjectively, what happens, of course, is that we think the the flow of consciousness, the spontaneous stream of consciousness, is the only thing that's really going on. Uh, and it's really hard to realize how much unconscious intelligence we have. But it's mm. a ton of intelligence because that's another way of talking about memory. Mm. And memory by now has a, a quarter of a quadrillion, is that right? Uh, yes, yes, synapses, yeah. yeah. Uh, something like that. It's fabulous. And it, it does interpenetrate everything we're conscious of, but somehow we still maintain a stability of the conscious sensory world, mm. right? Maybe not the conscious belief world, but certainly the conscious sensory world, which is mostly biological, mm -hmm. so it has to be stable, sure. otherwise you die. That's right. Right, so, so after 50 years, literally, of, of going from Herb Simon in the 1950s, working with a chess master, uh, named Adrian Le Groot, uh, a 
and who was very, he was Gestalt psychologist, he was very interested in the mental process of chess uh, players, and it was very puzzling. Uh, and one of the puzzles that they found with verbal protocols, right, uh, chess players talking through their, what they, whatever they thought their thoughts were, right, because they weren't sure that what their thoughts were, they just thought they thought. Uh, uh, what their thoughts were. Mm -hmm. Anyway, uh, so somebody's scribbling this down or, or, or typing it on a mechanical typewriter, uh, and those are protocols. And the really weird thing at the time was that this seemed to be a serial process, mm. but the brain doesn't look serial. Right. It looks massively parallel. So ah. we start off with this enormous paradox, and until Newell's work, it made no sense whatsoever, because Newell comes from exactly the same, what's called the cognitive architecture tradition. And by the time Newell comes along, we have enough computational power, basically, to have these little agents running back and forth mm. and sending messages to this common informational space. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and, but the paradox continues, because we don't really have an explanation in brain terms, for example, of why this should be so, because you have to understand that people get killed, right? Mm. That when they're texting uh, on their cell phones, yeah. they walk yeah. into traffic, yeah. Yeah. it's almost as if, as if they're blind. Right. It's interesting. Uh, back in the day, as in the day that but uh, Dan Dennett uh, published uh, Consciousness Explained, I think it was, yeah. uh, he he likened the, the brain uh, to... Uh, a serial, a serial processor running, or a parallel processor running a virtual serial machine. Hmm. He said that once, I bad. believe. I think, which is, which is okay. That was actually, yeah. you know, a pretty fairly insightful thing to say. Um, you mentioned actors when you were talking about actors in, in the global workspace. Who are the actors? I've arrived at that very hesitant, very hesitantly, mm -hmm. uh, and over a very long time. I don't like the term actors, mm. uh, but it turns out that there are agentive processes in the brain. They're agentive in the sense that they have criteria by which they try to, which they try to meet. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and they're, so they're neural nets, let's say, some kind of fuzzy, fuzzy fashion of neural nets uh, that uh, are homeostatic, first of all, yeah. right? Uh, so, so that they're constrained, they can't blow up the brain. Uh, and secondly, uh, in some real sense, uh, uh, much like DNA or, or the expression of DNA and proteins, there is an outcome towards which they emerge. Mm. Uh, there's a fate mm -hmm. uh, of some kind. Uh, and some of those are obviously biological, mm. uh, some of it is metabolic to keep the thing running, mm. uh, uh, but some of it uh, has to do with adaptation to novelty. Mm. Mm, right, and, yeah. and and that's that's why we, I believe that why we have this humongously expensive cortex, uh, which makes the human head a target for every predator mm. who ever stalks us, which is all of them. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so that's the essential idea. One other question: Global workspace has been interpreted in another number of ways over a number of years by a number of people. Right. How in the main have they done? Have, have there have there been some groups or some some individual scientists who've done a good job? 
Are there some who sort of stand out as sort of having taken the ball and just ran totally off the field? Oh, for sure. Yes. Uh, You know, popularity has its penalties, Mm. Uh, just like uh, lonesomeness uh, has. (laughs) Tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And and so uh, so people, especially, uh, I'm going to name computer science computer science people and even mathematicians Mm. are very seduced by the elegance of this global workspace thing. Mm -hmm. And it's actually very good mathematics, computational mathematics that's been performed Mm -hmm. that goes beyond Turing machines Mm. as really, really cool. Mm -hmm. Uh, So there's been tremendous progress, but there's also been tremendous misinterpretation. So just just an example of a, of, a, of a sort of a prominent misinterpretation. Who took the ball and just went home with it and you never came back to oh, be seen again? I, I think all the people who think that the internet is going to become conscious any day now. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so people who have invoked the term global workspace but refer to the internet, among other things. Some, something computational, something right. that is not biological. Gotcha. And the fact is that all the evidence we have it comes from psychology and biology, and you can consider psychology to be uh, within uh, biology in a broad way. Uh, but I prefer to use the term uh, psychobiology because consciousness is truly mm. both different and highly functional. It's not some side effect of right. the locomotive, you know, blowing off steam. Right. Uh, right. That metaphor is so wrong, it, it, it's hard to exaggerate it. It doesn't even work in terms of thermodynamics, <laughs> right? Because the steam whistle borrows power from, from, the, uh, from that which drives the, uh, the wheels. Uh, so, totally wrong, but it's very popular. Uh, and, and it's one of those seductive metaphors uh, that turn out to be very misleading. There are other seductive metaphors that are not so bad. Uh, and scientists have always kind of loved metaphors, or argued about them at least. Uh, and some of them are, are turn out to be useful, and some of them turn out to be dreadful. So very good. So I think we've we've more or less have a, a good pressee of, of global workspace um, generally. And as with many good ideas in science, uh, particularly massive global theories that, that of, of great import, uh, there are going to be many people who are enamored of those, of those, those wow. ideas. But among those people, there are going to be quite a lot who develop, you know, fairly serious misprisions about the idea and, and completely misinterpret it. Absolutely right. And as you know, uh, some of the early models about humanity were totally mechanistic. Yeah, yeah. Right? Right. Uh, uh, You know, I'm reminded of uh, Donald Knuth, the computer scientist's quote, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And I think that ultimately that's the test of a construct like global theory doesn't um, lead us to greater knowledge, doesn't suggest um, areas of research, doesn't make Mm -hmm. predictions that we can test. Exactly. And and that's where I think that that your, your idea has stood the test of time. It's, it's succeeded oh, so on far. all of those fronts. So whether it's right, you know, in perfect, uh, you know, representation of consciousness or not, it's right in the sense that it's been useful. Exactly. Moved us forward. I, I believe exactly. that's correct. And, and the other thing that I keep on wanting to pound the table about 
Uh, is that it's evidence, evidence, evidence. Yes. And, and constantly refined. So, you know, yeah. 60 years yeah. of Dynamic. evidence. Dynamic, yeah. It had testable implications. Yeah. As is all good science. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah and, and we all know that, but we rarely, sometimes, well, yeah. we don't always, but. We need to be reminded often. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Right or wrong, I think we can agree that global workspace theory, and I do believe, in fact, that it's right, has moved the field very far forward. So let's turn briefly to perceptual learning. Now, I'm a musician by avocation, of course, not professionally, because if I did it professionally, I would have starved to death many years ago. In any case, I'm an amateur musician. Um, I think that's a really, really good example of perceptual learning. Bernie, what do you think? When you become a musician or when you become a painter or when you become a scientist for that matter, there is perceptual learning that happens. If, if I look at a traditional x-ray of a human body, uh, and I'm uninformed about that, I'm untrained in, in interpreting x-rays, mm -hmm. I'm going to see it differently yeah, yeah. From, from, the, from the specialists, from the radiologists. Um, and this is uh, life, this used to be called, and still is called, perceptual learning. Uh, but it's transitions in consciousness, is yeah. it not? But from, from like a, the brain anatomy perspective, it's so powerful though. I mean, in terms of, of um, the DNA and the, it, it lays out like a very broad you know, range of possibilities, sort of like a, mm -hmm. a scoreboard in terms of it has a certain number of rows of lights and a certain number of columns of lights. But then life itself, different ones light up to give, right. it's, it's so broad. I mean, in terms of what our brains can, can, can learn. Uh, music is a good example. So we um, studied people with absolute or, and, and or perfect pitch. Yes. And no matter what your genetics are, if you don't have something between ages five and eight, some training, some system where you link this out, you yeah. don't, you don't you know, have never it. Developed. really hard to get it then when you're 16, right, 17. So mm -hmm. in countries like, well, Vietnam is one example, tonal languages, it's like 15 to 20%, a mm -hmm. huge percent of the population yeah, has um, uh, absolute, absolute, absolute yeah. One being you, you can get the pitch without any prompt and the other sure. with it. But to what extent could we train this you know, at all? To what extent could we learn to discern colors if we practiced it? Right. And that's what also fascinates me because the very optimistic aspect of this is like, it seems to be almost unlimited of what you could have the brain become very skilled in. Mm -hmm. um, and so I found one of those um, upbeat aspects of our brain taking like, you know, 20 some years to, to mature, so to speak. Right. The huge upside is that there's so many options you know, we can do. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I kind of probably overuse the example of, of reading, which is about 5,000 years old, that, that uh, most humans have never read a single word. Mm -hmm. It's not part of our brain. It's not, we weren't designed to read. Right. But uh, some people spend a lot of their day doing it. Right. And, and we can pull it off. Right. I wonder what other capacities there are. If we get really good at, at um, knowing how the brain does specialize, can we guide it? Can we have it specialize yeah. in things that are going to be useful? Because uh, like now we're teaching kids facts and figures still. Like how high is you know, the mountain? How long is the river and stuff? Mm. You can look it up in 15 seconds on your phone. And that's a double-edged yeah. sword, but we can yeah. talk about that later. But, but they will right. need to use it to solve problems. And sure. Solve and you, like, we, we talked a little bit the other day about should you memorize your times tables, right? right. And I'd say, yes, 
But if you, you know, push me, I can't really prove it. I just, right. I think you should know your time tables, even though I, yeah, you can look it up. But still, there's some, you know, minimal body of evidence, you know, or GPS systems. So demonstrated, right. we actually are getting worse at navigating, right? So oh, what? It's so what? We have our phone. Right. Like, we don't need it. No, like, personally, I can't get worse on, at navigating the line. Oh, you're not as bad as I am. But, so I, my so nickname is the skeleton you know, of the desk. Yeah. But, but I would say, I, wow. would, I would kind of go, so what, though, right? Because yeah. we do have the technology. We do. The, we the do. power might go out. But even, like, the ability to use a sextant, right? Yeah. People say, like, the... You point the visor. Yeah, no, I can. I, yeah. I can. You know, it's rate, a lost art. Can't use a slide rule and stuff. But I would kind of say, well, so what? You know, so we don't need to use right. slide. We don't need to use the sure. sextants. We don't need to um, navigate by the stars. But then, can we replace it with things that we that would be useful? Which I think nowadays is pattern recognition. Huge amounts of data. With that's what do we do with it? How do we use it to solve problems? Right. We can teach that. We I think we can. You know, formally attack it in schools and education, young ages and old, but we aren't yet because all of this is so uh, new, it's hard to know how to prepare today's children for their future. That's right. Instead uh, so of you mean, you yeah. mean the, the art of telling computers how to perform pattern recognition? Um, of humans. I no, mean, humans. in terms of, because um, we're still, you know, one of the probably few like domains, we're still really good at it. And you're like, and we can recognize, um, I, Personal example, just kind of going back to a class reunion, uh, in, in in terms of, of forty years later, and you, oh you yeah, pick you out a person. people right. 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 So I used to have hair, and I've been I can right. totally different almost any way I can imagine. So that's people right. are kind of like, are you, you know, yeah. But, um, and that's actually hard for for computers to do. It's very hard. Not they're getting better and better at it. Right. But how do you teach kids, you know, to um, you know, to solve problems with the data? Right. Because if they can, it is some of them just take to it naturally. They're amazing accomplishments. Right. And the data, uh, is, is, it's like a click away. Almost everything you can think of, there's knowledge sure. about it. It's, it's, it's so, a deal. Yeah. So let's take stock of where we're, where we're at. Let me just see whether I get this right. And you guys can jump in. We started with the problem of defining consciousness. What is it? And I offered a definition. Um, the idea that in order to be conscious of something, of the, of the great big out there, whatever, um, there has to be something that you might call a perceptual unity. The idea yes. that you're binding, you're binding various sensoria together or even submodalities of one sensory apparatus. Vision is a good example. Mm -hmm. It's not just about one thing, right? As we know, it's about many things and that's reflected in the organization of a visual cortex all kinds of areas, up to 70, depending on who you talk to mm -hmm. in, in mm -hmm. a primate, in nine primate in human beings. So we talked about, at least, you know, I, I started with my definition of consciousness as the notion of binding the world together, the m multiple sensory inputs as a sensory whole. And then the second part was the persistence of that sensory whole in memory. That the fact that those neuronal groups that are dynamically representing this, they more or less hold together you know, there's a coherent constellation of neural activity, which is based on the anatomy that is, it, it persists, right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. do you think just a yes or no, because we'll go on from, from here, but are you guys, is that, do you guys think that, that, that does that sit well with you, that idea? Just, oh, it sits extremely okay. well. Yes. I guess but, like um, the, the binding aspect. So right. like, so, but then the, it keeps going. So now we have like, 
binding together the bound, you know, sort of right. thing. Like, oh, so, yeah. So now it's ducks and, and turkeys. Further and elaborating and through time. your life. And it, it goes on for quite a ways in terms oh, of yeah. these sort of, um, of uh, thinking of the different parts of the brain as being letters of the alphabet. Sure. And the letters then words and the words sure. sentences. And, sure. and at some level, then we have maybe it's a paragraph or something. That's what I would say. Now it's conscious. Yes. Like oh, sure. But I don't know so, if it's one sentence or a chapter. So who, who knows yeah. when that Rubicon is, yeah. right? Um, so that may be an open-ended question we can't solve today. But, but sort of but, the very you know full circle kind of thing, like when you say, like, what do I think consciousness is? That's kind of what I think it is. It's when, it, gotcha. it's when this um, uh, binding, when this integration, this weaving becomes sufficiently um, sophisticated, right. complicated, that's when consciousness emerges. There you go. As, as and, speculation. And, and as with so many, so many things um, in science in general, but in neuroscience in particular, the question of how much is necessary, what is necessary and how much of that what is necessary to yield something like a conscious experience, that's really very open-ended and it's, we're, still, we're still struggling with that, yeah. I think. But um, when I was the you know, age of some of our audience, right, in terms of in, in undergraduate college, though, it was very much like a philosophical sort of notion. Like, well, we'll never know, but maybe. But what's exciting to me is now it's not just philosophical because with brain imaging techniques and other approaches, we can kind of get at some of these things. We can sure. actually measure these. Sure. To me, that's cool. Like that we haven't really had that ability before to right. go beyond, you know, um, like uh, more Aristotelian sort of thought experiments. We can actually actually test some of these, these sure. things with uh, clever, uh, clever questions and, and people. We talked earlier about this sort of Rubicon that you cross. And, and, in, and in Jay's world, the Rubicon might be developmental in the sense of what isn't fully developed that will preclude a conscious experience and what happens at a certain point developmentally that yields conscious experience. What changes in the brain? We talked about that a little bit. And so in essence, we were kind of nibbling around the edges of the sine qua non of the conscious experience anatomically, physiologically. But Bernie, I think the global workspace theory has a lot to sort of contribute to this. Mm -hmm. So what I would like to do is ask you, uh, relative to global workspace, this global view of consciousness in the brain, mm -hmm. what areas would you say, and we're going to be mammal-centric, at least for the moment, but because I'm going to hit you up later with a, with a counterexample in the octopus. Okay. But in the mammal, what areas are relevant to the conscious experience in the mammalian brain? The answer is at least twofold for this conscious state, and you both know this. For the conscious waking state, uh, there's brainstem mechanisms, and they pretty much, you know, if you touch yourself back here and feel the uh, the the back of your cranium, uh, let's call that brainstem, uh, and uh, and it does project forward into the thalamus, and the thalamus is looks like the anatomical center of the cortex, even mm -hmm. though it's not. Uh, and and so then we get neocortex thalamus plus this huge expansion of the cortex that occurs with our biological ancestors. So uh, so cortex is the organ of mind, which was. I believe Penfield's discovery in 1934, mm -hmm. after studying waking human patients, epileptic patients who needed, badly needed surgery, uh, and nobody quite knew how do you do the right kind of surgery without endangering people uh, too much. Uh, and 
the Penfield team, along with others, discovered how to do that. And suddenly you could talk to the cortex, hmm. right? Yeah. And, and that's been repeated by now. I think there are 200 or more uh, studies in the literature using pretty much that same setup. Mm -hmm. So you open- The back cortical stimulation. Exactly yeah. right. Uh, so you open the cortex, just a little flap, you don't want to infect anything, and you, and you protect it. Uh, and then you very gently uh, stimulate the motor cortex, for example, or more interestingly, actually the sensory body map, uh, uh, S1, uh, called S1 for sensory one. Uh, and suddenly this patient goes, I feel something. Holy moly. Hmm. This was not exactly the first time, but was close to the first time when by the time he got done, he had 1,200 surgical patients that he had studied, mm. and that kind of procedure became rock solid and mm. has improved since that time. So we can talk to cortex, mm. uh, and and so this is no longer entirely speculative. And through through Penfield's work, we were able to at least get the the sort of the initial sort of uh, uh, framework of of specialized brain anatomy. So that is right. aerial yeah. specializations for certain kinds of things. Right. Even though now we know that it wasn't completely, it's not completely, not, it's not wrong, but it's not the whole picture. So you can't right. simply talk about brain specialization. Yeah, right. but, the, but that's the nature of science. That's right? the nature of science. He, he also was right. Predated you know, by far fMRI, mm -hmm. but he actually noticed it very early on that he could see the different colors in terms of blood flow. And oh, really? He kind of nailed it in terms of so um, mm -hmm. fMRI, functional MRI, um, uses the right. MRI machine that is basically a, a blood flow detection. Right. And, and yes. Um, yes. oxygenated blood has different magnetic properties of deoxygenated, and you can use this principle to kind of see where the action is. Right. It's a little bit indirect. It's sort of three to five seconds after the action, exactly. and it's. But but uh, Penfield in his writings, he kind of noted, you know, that yeah, you could literally once the lid is off, there's no pain receptors on the brain, so right. you're good to go. Absolutely, he could see um, uh, you know, flashes of color related to blood flow in areas of activation. Really, uh, it sort of was a, a small potatoes compared to the That's, cool aspect of touching this part of the brain and this is a specific memory, right. you know, mag magical type of um, discovery. Really? But but um, he was like like his you know, colleague have at the same right. of time, so far ahead of their time and we're kind of uh, rediscovering many of the, the principles Absolutely. they put forward. And, and when you mentioned fMRI and its basis, how it works, you bring up an interesting point as well, which mm -hmm. is that um, and, and technically, we're very limited still. I yeah, mean, even though it seems like an incredible yeah, yeah. A, a, a advancement between Penfield's capacity or ability to sort of observe differences in coloration based on blood flow. But the fact is that when you do fMRI, what you're really looking at is you're looking at differential brain metabolism. Essentially, brain cells that are more active are, are hungrier brain cells. Yeah, yeah. They need more glucose, they need more oxygen. Blood flow is quite sensitive to that. So if you can observe blood flow and a distinction, so some areas are getting more blood flow, other areas are getting less blood flow, that is at least indirectly relates to higher function. So in effect, fMRI is giving us a sort of an indirect read, as you said, of relative activity in one area versus another area. The downside to that, of course, is 
spatially, it's a little bit limited and limiting. It is, like it's, yes, it's yeah. a millimeter, maybe a square mm -hmm. millimeter. And of yeah. course, there's Definitely. a universe in a. In a but but still, you, I mean, no. your points are are very well taken because it's very easy to overestimate the capabilities. That's right. That's right. And Zeman kind of looked at in terms of if you just put a brain picture in the paper right. that has even nothing to do with it. Other scientists will rate the paper as better. Of course. If it's a colored picture, even more. It's amazing, it isn't it? It's not this sort of irrational persuasion. That's right? sort of And even though my career is, you know, is brain imaging, I, I'm much more worried sort of about the overinterpretations mm. and, and people um, like in the yeah. courtroom and, and stuff sure. like that. Right. That I, I feel oddly sort of on the other side sometimes. Like, well, okay, you know, this is a fabulous technology. Really However, right. you know, and because all the men, you know, those are, these are very hard to overcome limitations. Actually. They're, they're very hard <laughs> to overcome. And there's even the temporal yeah. limitation, which is to say it's not just simply something that's scanning your brain. Right. It's the computational processes yeah. behind that. There is a computer, there's a set, essentially microprocessors that have to pull this data together, analyze it. And when you're reconstructing a single slice from so an fMRI, let's say you're getting a, a coronal section of a head right. out of this, it's taking at least a second yeah. to get that data together, which means that your temporal slices are right. up to a second apart. Right. And that could be a lot of time vis-a-vis -vis well, brain access. So, so this is an argument in favor of Penfield. Uh, yes. because oh, and a tribute to his genius. Of, right. yes. Uh, yes. yes, exactly. And right. his dedication, actually also his ethics, uh, which is very much uh, worth talking about because right. all those patients are still in the archives. Sure. They have not been published to protect the uh, privacy right. of, of the patients. Right. Uh, uh, he's a very great man. Yeah. Uh, so anyway, uh, uh, the Penfield procedure, which I, as I'm going to call it, he didn't want to call it that. He wanted to call it the Montreal procedure, right? Mm. Uh, and uh, because he was appropriately modest. Mm. The Montreal procedure, let's call it for now, uh, is still being done. And it's been rediscovered, highly developed, uh, and so now we can get neurons in real time mm -hmm. in a certain sense. So whenever one little neuron fires, mm -hmm. and they've done this beautiful work with the temporal lobe neurons, mm -hmm. which is how many billion, I don't know. Mm -hmm. uh, but you can pick out just one neuron, and mm -hmm. when it fires, you can give essentially instantaneous feedback. And you can correlate it too, in, in if you have a, a, a patient expressing some sort of epileptiform issue, you can do an right. open open skull surgery, you can put a web, a massive web of electrodes up to a thousand, say more than that at this point, what Itzhak Fried does at UCLA, you can stick a web of a thousand electrodes and do essentially either sophisticated field potential recording, or you can sync individual electrodes in and you can actually record individuals, individual neurons responses mm -hmm. to something out in the world, which is really cool. Yeah. So I think we can all agree that some serious technical strides have been made and we're entering into a very exciting era of experimentation. And on that note, I'd like to thank Bernie Bars and Jay Geed for a great conversation. I'm neuroscientist David Edelman. Thank you for listening and for tuning into the podcast On Consciousness with Bernard Bars.